Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. De-escalation training. Uni members say police need these skills to reduce officer-involved shootings. The latest call for change coming after a shooting in New Haven that left a passenger of a car in the hospital. We'll talk to a retired lieutenant from the New Haven Police Department who teaches police officer wait police officers ways to de-escalate. Ray Hassett joins us later. We'll also hear from State Senator Gary Winfield, co-chair of the Judiciary Committee in the Connecticut General Assembly. Winfield has led efforts to pass police accountability laws in our state. First, we get the latest from two recent police shootings in Connecticut. They are two very different cases. Uh, Joining us from the New Haven studio for Connecticut Public Radio is Lori Mack. She covers criminal justice. Lori, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lucy. So, Lori, can you briefly tell us uh, on April 16th, what happened exactly in New Haven that led to a police shooting there? Sure. Uh, Shortly before 4.30 in the morning, Hamden police received a 911 call from a gas station mini-mart clerk reporting an attempted armed robbery. He said a customer pulled a gun on the person who delivers the newspapers there and asked him for his money. The dispatcher puts out the call. New Haven is then alerted through a radio hotline, also heard by the Yale Police Department, about a recent robbery with a gun. Uh, At that point, Hamden officer Devin Eaton and Yale officer Terrence Pollock end up stopping a car matching the description of the suspects in the uh, Dixwell Avenue area of New Haven, and at this point, things start to move pretty quickly. Two people are in the car, driver Paul Witherspoon and Stephanie Washington, and they're blocked in. Witherspoon told investigators that his window didn't work and he opened the door to show police his hands, and that's when police started firing. Mm. Uh, We understand that there were cameras on the scene, uh, but not much footage. Uh, Tell us about why and for the stuff that is available, how long did it take for it to come out? Sure. So let's start with a Yale police officer who was outfitted with a body uh, camera and a dash cam. He doesn't turn either one of them on. So there's no footage from the Yale police officer. The Hamden police officer has a body cam, but they do not have dash cameras. Um, he turns on, the, speaking about Hamden, the Hamden police officer turns on his body cam after the shooting begins, but there's a recall function which grabs about 30 seconds of video prior to an officer hitting record. So they do have some footage from the Hamden police officer. Um, but it's not a lot. And so at this point, they are they need to send out that footage for enhancement. Mm. Coming up, we're going to hear about um, some laws or guidance that uh, police departments get uh, throughout the state. Uh, what has uh, State Police Commissioner Rovella said about um, with the fact that these cams weren't turned on when they should have been? Right. He said that it was inconsistent with state statute and recommended policy and procedure. But he also said that some departments have other rules. Now, as far as Hamden is concerned, all of their officers have been issued body cams. But their policy states that officers are supposed to activate that those body cams at the inception of an interaction with public uh, in a law enforcement capacity. However, they also point out that police shouldn't put their safety or the safety of the public at risk just for the purpose of activating a body cam. Uh, I mentioned that uh, someone was injured in this specific shooting. How many shots were fired on the scene, Lori? 
16 total, 13 by the Hamden police officer and three by the Yale police officer. Um, the Yale police officer was also injured. The police did not go into the specifics of his injuries, but said he was injured, they believe, by projectile. And a woman, Stephanie Washington, was a passenger in that car. Um, is she still recovering? Yes, she suffered a non-life-threatening injury. Um, we know the investigation is continuing, but but you know, was anyone in that car armed, Lori? No. So police have reported that there were no guns found at the scene, and they um, they had a recently had released a search and seizure warrant or an application for a search and seizure of the car and found that there were no guns in the car as well. Lori Mack is joining us from the New Haven studio of Connecticut Public Radio. She covers criminal justice, and today we're talking about uh, two uh, recent officer-involved shootings, the first one happening in New Haven. Uh, Lori was uh, giving us the rundown of that particular incident. Uh, Lori, you've also been talking to community members. Uh, I understand there was a prayer service just yesterday. Uh, What are you hearing from the community about this particular incident? So yesterday's service was, was really different. It was, first of all, it was focused on healing and um, bringing the community and the police together. It was not a protest. It was not, they were not delivering a message of firing the cops. It was very different. Uh, it was uplifting and if it was welcoming. There were several uh, members of the New Haven Board of Alders that attended. There was a Hamden uh, Lieutenant Frank McDermott attended, Hamden Acting Police Chief John Capiello, and from New Haven, there was Police Captain Anthony Duff, who was representing Mayor Tony Harp in the New Haven Police Department. And after talking with them following the service, they all seemed to feel that it was a positive message and, um, and, and just upbeat in general. So while that was a, a, a tone of healing um, and having the community come together, prior to that, there were almost daily protests uh, after this shooting in New Haven. Um, what do the protesters, the other community members, activists, uh, what do they want to see happen, Lori? So at first, they wanted transparency. They wanted the names released, and that happened rather quickly, like by the next day. Then they wanted the body cam footage released, and that happened exactly one week later, which, by the way, is unprecedented. That's not, that's very out of, out of the norm. Mm -hmm. Usually, footage is not released until after an investigation is complete. However, the state has been really uh, committed to being transparent and releasing as much information as they possibly can without harming the investigation. There have been uh, several press conferences, including religious leaders. I understand uh, some of those religious leaders, like Reverend John Lewis, are calling for additional training, like de-escalation and also urban trauma training. Uh, Here's a clip of what he said last Wednesday. Too often we want to do a six-hour training or a training that lasts for two days and that's done. No, this kind of training helps develop relationships. And it helps be able to put it in a place where there's some engagement there. And that's important because you won't shoot somebody as quick if you got a relationship with them. Uh, Lori, uh, what have you been hearing about when this investigation will be completed? You mentioned that that body cam footage was released and that was unprecedented. But how long is it going to take to figure out what exactly happened there? Well, State Police Commissioner James Ravella revealed last week during a press conference last Wednesday that they believe that the investigation could last two to three months. Um, As I said before, they've taken the footage and sent it out for enhancement, and the officers are uh, on leave. 
Lori Mack, again, covers criminal justice for Connecticut Public Radio, joining us today from our New Haven studio. Uh, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. I wanted to turn to another officer-involved shooting that happened just days after uh, that New Haven shooting. In studio with me is Ryan Lindsay, reporter for Connecticut Public Radio and the Guns in America Public Radio Reporting Collaborative. Ryan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Um, so tell us what happened uh, in this shooting in the Hartford area. Actually, it was in Weathersfield, where an 18-year-old was shot and killed by a police officer. I understand it all started as a traffic stop. How did it end up this way? Yeah, so uh, 18-year-old Anthony Jose Vega Cruz, his friends and family call him Chulo, uh, was driving in Weathersfield and police attempted to pull him over. Um, All we have so far is sort of what the police have been reporting. And so in that traffic stop, um, they stopped the car. They say that Cruz tried to pull away. Um, At some point, there was a collision with another police cruiser. Um, And then the police say that Cruz drove towards an officer who then fired into the vehicle. Um, Cruz was shot in the head twice, was on, this was around 6 p.m. last Saturday. uh, And then he was on life support and then he passed away from his wounds on Monday. Um, So that incident has, you know, coupled with the shooting in New Haven, um, has caused a lot of unrest and, um, you know, just reactions within the community. Mm. Uh, we heard from Lori that there were issues with uh, Yale and Hamden officers involved in that shooting uh, when they had their body cams on. Uh, but in this Weathersfield incident, uh, do the, does the police department have body cams at all? No. So not in Weathersfield. There is um, dash cam footage that the investigation is now in the hands of Gail P. Hardy, the state's attorney in Hartford. She did put out a statement uh, last week saying that she does want to release that footage. But only when she's able to determine that that won't interfere with the investigation. Um, And so a lot of cries from the community are raising the question, why can't officers uh, handle these traffic situations in another way? Um, Actually, two years ago today, 15-year-old Jordan Edwards in Texas was shot and killed um, while riding in the passenger seat. And so um, that that was something that echoes something from the past. In New York, uh, NYPD in 1972 created a rule that basically disallowed police officer from shooting into vehicles while they're moving. Um, in the Washington Post in recent years has reported that there's been over 200 people who've been killed by police in a moving vehicle um, since 2015. So this is something that not is that's not just happening here in Connecticut, but also across the country. Uh, how has the Weathersfield Police Department responded about this particular incident and then even what you've mentioned, certain standards that are in play to keep this from happening? Sure. I, I absolutely can't speak for the police department as a whole. I can only share what I've observed. And so there has been um, a noticeable level of tension between, in particular, I think, um, James Setrin, the uh, police chief of Weathersfield, who in the past has denied reports that have come out from the um, Connecticut Racial Profiling po- uh, Project, I think it's CRP3 is their mm-hmm. acronym, that has shown in the past few years, I believe since 2015, that Weathersfield does have a problem when it comes to what they call um, racial uh, discrepancies when it comes to police stop or traffic stops. Um, so at one of the protests, he came outside, uh, protesters and family members were calling, we want the chief, we want the chief, he comes out. Um, they they were upset because there was apparently video of him laughing when someone was asking if the shooting was under investigation. So a lot of sort of salt on the wound um, instances. And then on Thursday at the protests, the, there were a group of uh, younger folks from Hartford who marched from Hartford to Weathersfield to meet up with another group. And he stood outside, uh, was behind police barricades, didn't really say anything. 
Um, and so, you know, it's just it's it's just been interesting to observe sort of that um, those interactions or lack thereof. You mentioned uh, the Connecticut Racial Profiling Prohibition uh, Project. Uh, and since 2015, they have uh, analyzed more than 100 police departments in the state of Connecticut. Uh, we should note Weathersfield is the only department that's been in the top five each year. Uh, when you look at the degree of racial disparities in their traffic stop data. Right. Yeah, if you look at um, Silas Dean Highway, which was where uh, Tulo was stopped, um, they're sort of they break it up into three portions. So there's the northern portion, the middle, and the southern portion. The southern portion being closer to Rocky Hill the northern being closer to Hartford. And so what their research has shown is that there are a higher number of um, police stops on that northern border, the Hartford border. And in addition, there is a significant number or what they call not discrepancies, but I should say racial disparities um, of who's being stopped. And so a lot of black and brown people coming in and out of um, Weathersfield, there's a grocery store that, that a lot grocery store there that a lot of folks populate are being exposed to more policing, and it's for things like um, some maybe uh, dark tents, um, some sort of vehicle not vehicle but equipment malfunction is what they call. So if your tail light is out or something's wrong with your car, those are the reasons that you're going to get stopped closer to that border. Whereas on the southern end of Dean Highway, Silas Dean Highway. Um, if you're speeding, if you run a stoplight or um, a stop sign, those are going to be more safety related reasons why you're stopped. And so generally, um, the research has shown that white drivers are not exposed to or subjected to the same amount of treatment. And also something that's worth highlighting is that generally nationwide, black men are three times more likely to be killed by a police use of force and Latino men and not even men, but this is really black and Latino males over the age of 10 years old. Um, are more likely to be subjected to police use of force and then three and two times more likely to be killed by that use of force. Mm. Ryan Lindsay, again, is a Hartford-based reporter for Connecticut Public Radio and the Guns in America Public Radio Radio Reporting Collaborative. Uh, We're talking about uh, this recent officer-involved shooting in Wethersfield uh, that resulted in an 18-year-old being killed uh, in uh, what started as a traffic stop. Ryan, I understand that you uh, covered the wake of uh, Mr. Cruz. Uh, when family and community members are talking about him and what has happened, are they also talking about gun violence broadly? I, I understand you also spoke to some people that are looking for change there as well. Yeah, I think it was interesting. Um, Rodney Williams is Paul Weatherspoon's uncle. And so he's been, he was um, at the press conference when they released the body cam footage up in New Haven. Um, and so he was at the wake. He's been at he was at the protest on Thursday and he's definitely been involved in, um, I guess, sharing what they're experiencing with the two families. Um, and so there is a conversation of, again, why is it when, you know, there's an opportunity to de-escalate or approach a traffic stop um, in a different way? Why do and this is something that um, Bishop Selder said, why do black and brown people get bullets um, instead of something else in these type of interactions. So there are these conversations. Um, and in general, this is this is nothing new. Um, we saw a couple years back in 2017 that a 15-year-old Jason Negron was shot and killed by a police officer up in Bridgeport. That officer went to trial but um, did not have and end up seeing any jail time um, from that. And that was, again, when an officer decided to uh, pursue on foot um, a vehicle and the young man was driving the vehicle. And so there's not a lot of questions about why does this continue to happen and also, um, you know, calls for justice 
folks in the community want these officers to be able to go to have their day in court mm. to see, okay, was this police uh, use of force justified um, beyond the officer claiming or calling, saying that they were using that because they feared for their life. Mm. We should mention uh, around the same time that Anthony Vega Cruz was killed, there was a 16-year-old Hartford teenager uh, that was killed. You spoke to Javon Alston, a close friend of Mr. Cruz, at a protest last week. We're fighting for everybody, not just Chulo, exactly, for anybody who's been killed. There's a lot of murders going on, and we just want, want it to all be stopped, whether it's from the police or just each other. I don't want for me, any killings or deaths the wrong way. We just hope it all all be resolved and everybody, you know, just, just live and do better. That's all. Again, that was uh, Javon Alston. I want to thank Ryan Lindsay uh, for telling us some more about this uh, situation in Weathersfield. Before we let you go, uh, the timeline of when the state's attorney investigation will conclude. Yeah, I think generally people are holding their breath for this body cam footage. Uh, The state's attorney's office hasn't given any information about when that's going to be released. And even with the uh, New Haven and Hamden investigation, uh, Ravella said that it could be another two or three months before that investigation is included. So Uh, We're just sort of kind of taking it day by day and seeing what information um, is released and what develops in these two investigations. Ryan Lindsay, reporter for Connecticut Public Radio and the Guns in America Public Radio Reporting Collaborative. Ryan, thanks again. Thanks for having me. Also, thanks to Lori Mack, reporter for Connecticut Public Radio based in New Haven. Coming up, what laws does Connecticut have that call for police accountability when excessive force is used? Uh, State Senator Gary Winfield will join us, and you can join our conversation, too. 860-275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. When there is an officer-involved shooting of an unarmed person, often there are calls for police to be held accountable when a shooting appears unjustified. Community members also question how law enforcement is trained and whether there'll be changes to avoid deadly force. Coming up, we'll learn why a retired New Haven police lieutenant offers de-escalation training to police departments and members of the public. First, to the police accountability question, State Senator Gary Winfield has led efforts to hold police officers to stricter standards through legislation before the Connecticut General Assembly. Senator Winfield joins us now in studio to talk about why certain proposals have stalled in recent years. And you can join us, too, the number 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Senator Gary Winfield, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you for having me again. I mentioned that you're co-chair of the Judiciary Committee. You also represent New Haven and West Haven. So let's start with body cams. We heard from uh, WMPR reporters that Weathersfield doesn't use them. Uh, there were questions about when Hamdom and, and uh, Yale officers uh, uh, involved in that New Haven shooting had turned them on. So what does legislation uh, that passed in 2015 actually um, say about when police officers should have these uh body cameras on and how they should be used. So the the legislation that we passed in 2015 uh, allowed for post the police officer standards and training uh, to promulgate the regulations around body cameras. Um, What their body camera regulations say uh, suggests that in uh, certain interactions, body cameras should be turned on. So, for instance, the the interaction that we were talking about in, in New Haven, from my reading of the regulation, uh, the officers knew that they were going to be on a scene where they were interacting with um, individuals and should have had their body cameras on. Um, in terms of the uh, the cars and the cameras that are on the cars, it has always been my understanding 
that when the lights go on, the uh, cameras go on. So uh, as I've been listening to this, it's been a little interesting to me that the, the camera in the Yale car wasn't on. Um, and, and I guess that's a question that's still out there. Uh, but what we attempted to do in 2015 was to make sure that, uh, one, we had body cameras. Prior to that, uh, body cameras were not something that the state itself had really weighed in on. Uh, and so we created a program where police um, uh, agencies could uh, avail themselves of funds that the state had set aside uh, for the body cameras, kind of to entice them. Uh, and anyone who, any agency that had uh, availed themselves of those funds would be uh, subject to uh, the regulations promulgated by post. So how many uh, police departments uh, took the state up on that offer? Not enough. Um, I don't know off the top of my head, but that was uh, a, a continued struggle uh, that we had trying to get uh, police uh, uh, departments to avail themselves. So what we did was we created kind of a um, a, a waning of the funds, right? Mm-hmm. So if you don't take the funds in the first year, you uh, if you take them in the sec- second year, do we get 75% of the funds? And it went down like that. Uh, kind of to say, at some point, uh, given what's happening with the national conversation, we're going to have body cameras, uh, and it wouldn't make sense for you to leave the funds on the table. Having said that, there are police departments that did. So for the police departments that did take the state funding that have these body cams in a situation where they're not being used uh, properly, uh, what are the ramifications, the consequences for that? Very little. So this gets into the conversation about um, uh, police accountability bills that have been in a General Assembly. Uh, So the 2015 bill started off much stronger uh, than it ultimately was. And it wasn't just about body cameras, to be sure. Uh, It also was about... Um, what happens when there is a police-involved shooting uh, and uh, an officer is found guilty or uh, pleads that uh, no contest or something of that nature uh, with that officer going forward. So um, that officer would not be hired again in the state of Connecticut. Uh, That officer also, if we knew that they went outside of our jurisdiction but we knew where they went, we'd be required to uh, let them know what happened. Uh, So there are those kind of reporting things, uh, but there's very little... uh, from my perspective, uh, serious punishment. Not that punishment is necessarily what we're trying to do, but I think punish, punishments are important, um, or at least uh, thinking about repercussions for an action. Um, and so in, this, in, in the General Assembly, uh, th- there are a lot of people who are concerned about what's happening with the police. But when we're operating, the lobby for the police is stronger than the lobby for the people. Um, and it has had a huge impact on whether or not we can uh, move any of this legislation. When you mentioned the pushback, what is the, the feeling, the general sentiment that um, as long as someone complies with a police officer's request that nothing bad is going to happen? Or they acknowledge that there are incidents, we've seen it across this country, where uh, Philando Castile mm-hmm. did everything that he was supposed to and he was still murdered. I think there's kind of, and I was in the military for a while, so I understand this to a, to a degree. I think there's kind of this uh, imagination about the the person who puts on an, a uniform and who that person is. Uh, but I would say to the general public and to the police themselves that the day before you put on that uniform uh, is the same person you are the day you put that uniform on. Uh, you might feel a sense of responsibility you didn't feel, but you're essentially the same person. And so the mere fact that you put the uniform on doesn't say whether you're good or bad. And in, in, in our kind of public conversation, police are good. And so in a General Assembly, that's what it is. And so it means that anytime we try to uh, raise accountability for police, we are saying that police are bad, which is not what's happening. Uh, and I will say one thing that I said um, on, on social media this weekend. 
uh, I'm not really interested in having that conversation about good police until police who are good are interested in having a conversation about police accountability. Mm. Uh, State Senator Gary Winfield is in studio with us here on Where We Live. He co-chairs the Judiciary Committee, represents New Haven and West Haven as we talk about uh, efforts to have uh, police accountability laws in effect in the state of Connecticut. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Let's talk about uh, racial profiling. Uh, We heard about uh, this specific board, the Racial Profiling Prohibition Project Advisory Board that looks at data from municipalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hear that Weathersfield, where this uh, officer-involved shooting happened recently, is on the top five of mm-hmm. racial disparities. Uh, so when we think about this data being uh, uh, you know, gathered, um, you know, what more should be happening around uh, just making sure that we have the data in terms of turning it into policy that helps both the police and the public? Yeah, so the the racial profiling law that we did, I think, uh, was good in that we now yield more data than we uh, we actually had in the past. And relating it to the conversation we're currently having, uh, there's data that we're missing. Uh, so we have some of this data on racial profiling, and there's stuff that we could do. We could use the Office of Policy and Management uh, and any grants that they might give to uh, police departments as kind of a um, a lure, if you will, to uh, kind of control some behavior. But we also have to think about the fact that we don't have data around the use of force. Um, so while it's not uh, the racial profiling uh, issue, it's a very important issue. So we don't know um, uh, what happens demographically with the use of force. We don't know what happens. And by use of force, I don't just mean the discharge of a gun. I also think of police chases as a use of force. Uh, so we don't have information around any of those things. And if I'm which I am, uh, looking to do something around police accountability, uh, I'm looking to pull these things in so that uh, at the end of the day, we can really know what's happening in the state of Connecticut and we can figure out, uh, based on what's happening, what the appropriate responses are. Uh, We heard uh, WNPR reporter Ryan Lindsay mention uh, New York City uh, changing uh, uh, rules related to uh, when an officer shoots. Do they shoot into a moving vehicle? Mm -hmm. Are these things that are being talked about in the Connecticut uh, General Assembly? These are things that have been talked about um, several times. Representative uh, Robin Porter uh, had an attempt at a bill in 2017, uh, and uh, that was part of the bill that she had. Uh, forbidding uh, that very action. Uh, As you might imagine, (laughs) that bill did not go very far. Um, But I think given what's happened um, currently, uh, this is a perfect time to open that conversation back up before the end of uh, the legislative session. So uh, I would imagine uh, that you will hear in the next week or two uh, a lot of talk coming out of the uh, legislative office building about that very subject. Uh, we hear as well uh, when uh, a shooting happens and it's fatal involving a police officer that um, the investigation is carried out by the state's attorneys uh, outside of that that local uh, district. Um, any changes that you see that are necessary to ensure that there are fair investigations whenever excessive force is used, whether it's a, f- a fatality or not? So I'm glad you bring that up. So uh, over the weekend, I've been working on language uh, to update what we do with police accountability and uh, what I'm working on is adding to the fatality, the use of force, which, while it's not fatal, uh, could lead to a fatality. So the discharge of a gun because is potentially fatal whether you kill someone or not. Um, so that that is captured in the way that we currently uh, deal with fatalities. Um, I, I think it's important to 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 uh, capture those things as well. So uh, there is an effort underway, and I've had conversation with some of my colleagues about that this weekend. Uh, so there is an effort underway uh, to 
do some of, and by the way, that was part of the original bill in 2015. It just, we could not get it passed. Uh, but there's an effort to go back to what we originally were intending and see if we could uh, get it uh, in law going forward. So, yes. Uh, Senator uh, Gary Winfield, again, uh, co-chairs the Judiciary uh, Committee. Um, we mentioned uh, that they're, you're working on uh, several uh, measures to uh, make police accountability stronger in our state. Uh, you say that there's been talk uh, this session, you're going to work towards it uh, in the future before it ends. But, you know, what's the likelihood that you see your colleagues, uh, you know, supporting this when there are there's so much on the plates of state lawmakers? Uh, when will this become a real priority in your view? Those are several questions. <laughs> um, so the, the likely, I, I think given what has happened uh, in this state, uh, the conversation is different. It is um, contemporary. It is a hot conversation. Um, I am someone who understands how to use those conversations. So that is the reason why um, my effort has increased in the last few days to uh, revisit some of the things we've done in the past. Um, I've, I've engaged with people who are outside of the legislative office building because I believe that oftentimes when we're trying to get some of the most thorny uh, things through that building, the effort can't be just the, the effort of a legislator. Uh, that's a good way to kill it. Uh, and so I'm hoping uh, that through those efforts, what we will hear in the building is an outcry from the public that uh, they want something done. And together, that will allow us to have a level of success we have not in the past. Uh, we heard from Josh on Twitter uh, related to uh, our previous conversation, uh, Senator Winfield. Uh, he writes, we need to talk about why the legislature is so reluctant to create meaningful, punitive police oversight. Uh, he believes it's rooted in widespread public perception that police have very dangerous jobs and that the black and Latinx neighborhoods they patrol are very violent. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, so if you start off with the premise that uh people who put on uniforms are necessarily good, if you start off with the premise that the job is necessarily dangerous at all times, and that they're patrolling neighborhoods that are inherently dangerous because of the fact that black and uh, Latin, Latin American people uh, live there, uh, you're going to um, you're going to side with the police when it comes to efforts to uh, squelch uh, police accountability. Um, and I think that's why part of the conversation requires that legislators who engage publicly on shows like yours on social media uh, say what is real. Uh, it is real that we have good and bad police. It is real that um, neighborhoods have uh, neighborhoods uh, where people of color live uh, have uh, uh, levels of violence that they don't like, but that doesn't make the neighborhood uh, inherently bad. Uh, and if we're going to have those conversations, then we should be having conversations about why those neighborhoods have those levels of violence, which is completely not part of the conversation. Uh, and so I think these conversations are overly simplistic. And when you have these overly simplistic conversations, it is useful to uh, keeping the legislature, those people who endeavor to do so, from moving forward police accountability legislation. Uh, before we head to break, Senator Winfield, I, I wanted to ask you um, how police contracts are worded um, in terms of you know protecting officers, especially if they're involved in shooting investigations. Does that hamper the ability to have certain accountability measures that you and your colleagues are trying to do before the General Assembly? It can. Um, I will also say that um, part of the legislation that uh, was passed uh, required that at a, a certain point, I don't remember the exact date, police contracts going forward couldn't hamper um, the accountability that we put in the 2015 law. Um, because if you don't have that explicitly out there, uh, then those contracts can, um, uh, those contracts that we are concerned about can uh, actually supersede the law. 
Uh, and so uh, that's part of the effort to deal with the fact that in Connecticut, contracts have a lot of power. Um, and so, yeah, this is a difficult conversation for many reasons. Part of it is the unique way in which uh, contracts have uh, power sometimes over the actual laws we have if they're not explicit in certain ways. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest in studio is State Senator Gary Winfield. We hope he sticks around uh, as we focus on the training police officers receive, including de-escalation training. We're going to talk to a retired New Haven lieutenant who specializes in this, and we want to hear from you, too. Join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, what steps can be taken to reduce violent encounters between the public and police? My next guest is a retired police lieutenant who now offers de-escalation training to law enforcement and the public. Uh, Ray Hassett's a former lieutenant with the New Haven Police Department. Uh, Ray, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Also to mention that State Senator Gary Winfield, uh, who represents New Haven and West Haven, is also here in studio. And you can join us, too. Uh, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live or call in 860-275-7266. Uh, Ray, we've heard uh, in recent, the last week or so, uh, there are community members down the New Haven area um, that are asking that uh, officers get more de-escalation training. What does that mean exactly? Well, it's uh, it de-escalation training is not a simple product. It's it's a different way of looking how you communicate. Uh, more importantly, it 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 it's based on how you listen to people. De-escalation is not about talking with anybody. It's not about talking to somebody. It's about listening uh, to where their where what their position is. So you were a police officer for more than two decades. How did you, uh, I guess, realize that maybe this is something that you could help fellow officers, uh, now that you're retired, uh, do better? So the important thing to learn about my background is that for the last 14 years of my career, I ran one of the busiest districts in New Haven, and I ran it from my car. Uh, I I didn't uh, go back into the office I stayed in the street uh, for 14 years, and quite frankly, it, it was one of the biggest learning experiences for me uh, as a police officer and as a human being uh, to understand where I fit in a particular culture. Uh, when I was looking at uh, the um the workshop or the training that you do online, uh, you mentioned that uh, police officers on the front line receive little or no formal training in managing powerful emotions, often the first on the scene when something is happening. So walk us through when you're uh, talking with police officers, uh, what are some ways that you're telling them to to de-escalate so that uh, there isn't a, something bad that's going to happen in the next few minutes? Well, the first thing that we – the de-escalation course that I teach has actually evolved to a connection course first. Uh, to give it some context, I work a lot overseas. I work in different cultures where um, it, it's not as fast-paced as ours. Uh, and when you're speaking with someone, they are 100 percent present in that conversation. You, they have your undivided attention and you give them your undivided attention. In our culture, we're wired to multitask. So where that affects somebody in crisis 
is that when they really need you, you don't realize it, that they, they're looking for you to listen rather than to give them direction. They're not ready to hear your direction. So how this training has evolved is that we, we train police officers and the public on how to listen and what to listen for. And also to realize when you show up, even if you have the best intentions in the world, in that first minute, you, make, you may be actually making things worse. Um, we're talking to you after uh, there were two recent uh, police shootings uh, in Connecticut. Uh, do you feel like this, the de-escalation training is needed now more than ever? Has something changed with uh, the way the public and the police interact? Oh yes, indeed. I think it's. Uh, I think that our brand in law enforcement uh, is not current. Uh, I think that uh, public service is not current. I think people are tired of government. I think we are we are we are not uh, as responsive to people when they need something. We've forgotten really what our, our our role is really to help. And until people are ready to accept our help, uh, so we're consistent. We keep showing up. We're not just problem solvers. We can't fix people. I think that's where we need to start. Uh, when we think about empathy, and that's something that uh, you talk about uh, in these trainings, what about just uh, understanding of respect, whether it's respect for the officer or respect for that person that the police officer is talking to and how that can get fuzzy and that's how things can sometimes escalate, uh, even if that wasn't the intention? It's, it's very Every time you meet someone, uh, they do the math on whether or not they can trust you, whether they like you, uh, whether they feel comfortable with you. Part of the training is understanding that we're looking for that sweet spot in communication with everybody in order to begin a relationship so that we can, we can actually get to the business at hand. But you got to recognize that first five seconds, that first 10 seconds, a lot of math is being done with, with the human brain. Uh, again, in studio with me is Ray Hassett. He's a retired lieutenant with the New Haven Police Department. He now conducts de-escalation trainings for uh, not only law enforcement, but the public. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. Um, State Senator Gary Winfield's with us as well. Um, you're talking about uh, police accountability laws before uh, the General Assembly, but when you hear about efforts to uh, give de-escalation training to police officers, I mean, how do you respond, and do you think that um, it's effective? Well, I, I think it would have to be more widespread for me to comment on its effectiveness. Um, I believe it would be. I, I think police officers who go into um, communities of color have to realize that they're not just going in as individuals as well, right? And they're not just going in with the current police um, department that exists in, in that municipality. They're going in, in a, with a historical context behind them. Um, and so if you walk into a community and you're expecting people to respect the fact that you sit in, in your uniform, you have to also understand that that uniform is connected to a history in that particular community of uh, interactions. And so it's particularly, from my perspective, it is particularly important that police recognize how to connect with people, that they recognize how to um, not allow a situation uh, that doesn't necessarily need to escalate to escalate. I think it is, I can't talk about its effectiveness because of a particular program, but I know that the concept is important to dealing with communities that have felt as if they're under siege. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Joining the conversation now is Jim uh, Nemfois, who works for POST. That's the Police Officer Standards and Training, uh, I believe. Uh, Jim, tell us exactly what POST stands for and what you do there. 
morning. Uh, yes, POST is the Police Officer Standards and Training Council, and we are responsible for training all municipal police officers in the state of Connecticut, and we do that training through the Connecticut Police Academy, where it's uh, overseen. Uh, we're talking with uh, a retired Lieutenant Ray Hassett, uh, who worked with the New Haven Police Department for more than two decades. He also uh, conducts de-escalation trainings. Uh, Jim, how long um, has uh, POST been offering uh, de-escalation training to police officers around our state? Well, de-escalation training has been part of uh, police basic training, you know, ever since the inception. What we do is de-escalate situations. Um, we have new programs here that uh, one of them is the LEADS program. It's Law Enforcement Active Diffusion Strategies. That is part of our basic training curriculum. But de-escalation is covered in so many different aspects that we do here at the Connecticut Police Academy. Um, we talk about it during use of force. We talk about doing interpersonal communications. We talk about it doing conflict management. It's something the police have been doing our, our entire history. Mm. Uh, Jim, uh, you mentioned that this is something that uh, police officers have gotten uh, from the inception. But when we uh, look at uh, different communities around our country where there is more uh, distrust of police, where there have been police shootings of unarmed individuals, how has that training that Post offers responded? Uh, to that climate and that tension to help officers today uh, when they're speaking with members of the public? Well, communication, as was talked about, is key. Um, obviously, we have to establish a dialogue to try to you know, alleviate any situation that's going on. Doing so calmly, looking at a big picture, recognizing how to use good procedures and good tactics to get a, a voluntary compliance to have people comply with, you know, legal lawful orders. But we also have to res recognize that law enforcement is the most dangerous profession in the country right now. An officer is three times more likely to get hurt than anybody else uh, working in America right now. Mm. It's a dangerous job. Um, unfortunately, we don't hear a lot of times about when things have been de-escalated. We can de-escalate 99 situations, but that one situation where uh, somebody does not want to comply with society's rules may lead to a situation where the officer has to use force. So it's a very complicated situation. Mm. Uh, Jim, uh, when uh, you talk about training officers around the state, do all uh, local police departments get the type of training you're talking about? Well, as what I can speak to is the, the basic training program here at the police academy for municipal officers. They're required to complete 800 and something hours of training before they go out to the agencies for uh, their field training. Then once they pass their field training, they become a certified police officer. At that point, it's up to the agencies to comply with state law on how much training they get. There's a minimum they need to get. But what type of training, the parameters are open for the, uh, a good part to the agency. So um, we will give a base. We will give a solid, well-founded base in communication, making good decisions, the proper procedure to be a good, effective police officer. But we only see an, uh, an officer for 2% of their career. Uh, Jim Nefois again is with Post. Uh, thank you for giving us some clarification on what Post offers uh, officers uh, around the state. Thank you, Jim. You're
You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. I wanted to go back uh, to Ray Hassett. Uh, something that uh, Jim mentioned uh, that um, they provide a base uh, for officers. It's up to the local police departments to then see if police officers should be receiving continued training. Is that a gap that you see that needs to be more um, continuous and throughout a police officer's career, not just when they're getting um, their certification to be a police officer? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, this it's a foundation. It's a basis. But, you know, communication is an art. Uh, if you don't practice, if you're not out there daily uh, learning how, how to adapt and adjust and read behavior, uh, your skills atrophy. You get stuck. You know, if you're used to dealing with, you know, a particular, 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 is really where things are, are at their most volatile. People are at their emotional, they're, they're at skyrocketing. So, you know, what's happened ironically is that, you know, the, the, the average job, the job uh, as far as there's nothing routine in policing, whether it's retail or policing, the, the first human contact with someone can be the most complex experience in their life. So that other person, that officer, has to have some incredibly sophisticated skills on how to, how to understand and help that person to, to de-escalate themselves. Mm. This is an art. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a tool. Uh, Ray Hassett, again, you were a police officer for many years within the New Haven Police Department. Uh, we hear uh, throughout the different uh, tenures of many different uh, New Haven police chiefs uh, in recent years, uh, this idea of returning to community policing, building relationships so that, that public doesn't just see police when something bad is happening. Well, I, I think when, going back to my last 14 years, uh, I, I was there through thick and thin. I was there when things had to be done, and I was also with, there when we made mistakes. Uh, I had to fix stuff. I had to listen. I had to be humbled. I had to, I had to figure out where I fit. I had to feel where I fit in a neighborhood. And that, that involves some maturity. It involves some life experience. Uh, but it, it involves constantly being able to reexamine your skills. Sometimes your skills don't work. Uh, State Senator Gary Winfield, I wanted to, to bring uh, you back into the conversation because earlier we were talking about police accountability and standards in place. Is this something that state lawmakers should think about? Like how could uh, there be mandatory de-escalation training that is uh, uh, more consistent and not just at a certain point in a career? So I, I, I want to... <laughs> little frustrated by what I just heard, right? So I don't disagree that uh, it's part of the basic training, uh, but there's kind of this passing of the responsibility around. So whenever we make an attempt as state legislators uh, to change the law where police accountability uh, is included, whether it be what we're talking about currently or anything else, we get sent back to post. Uh, and so posts can speak without promulgating regulations. They can speak because they think it's important. Posts could say to the legislature, you know what we think is important, uh, but that's not what's happening. The other thing I want to say is that uh, when you're in community, uh, the actions you take, all of the actions you take are important. So I've engaged with police officers uh, and I've engaged with phenomenal police officers, but I've engaged with police officers who recognize that I'm the state senator where we're standing. And the conversation is not a conversation should that should happen. So if that's happening to me, I can only imagine what happens to other people. Uh, 
and there's this thing that goes on, this constant conversation, and Officer Hassett probably has heard this conversation before. I've sat at my house at the corner of Winchester Division in New Haven, watched officers blow through the light with their um, turn the lights on. Uh, and because I am who I am, I've actually walked because I've seen them stop up. I've walked up the hill to find out what they were, why they had to do it. And I've actually had an officer say to me he didn't want to sit, sit at the light. Mm. Right. That increases the tension with the community because what the community sees is a level of what they perceive as disrespect. And so we have to have different conversations even than what we're having. We cannot say, well, it's part of the basic training, so we're, we're good to go. We cannot say that when I come to you and I give you an order, even if I'm not even supposed to be giving you an order, I'm supposed to be just having a conversation with you. You have to respect it because I sit in this uniform and that's the beginning, end, and middle, middle and end of the conversation. So it is difficult for legislators, given the way things work, to uh, make these things happen. But I think these conversations have to happen in a different way than they currently are happening. Mm. Uh, Ray Hassett, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, did you want to respond to what State Senator uh, Gary Winfield was saying? Absolutely. I think he's absolutely correct. Um, everything is in play now uh, with our brand, with how people perceive us. Uh, you know, we have to be the example. We have to set we have to set the tone, but but most importantly, when we show up, people have to trust us. We can't begin to do business until there's that level of trust. It's how the brain works. It's how the it's how the soul works. It's how basically people perceive each other. So it's I go back to the art of connection, and the art of connection is making it all about the other person. You already know who you are. Mm. Ray Hassett, again, is a retired lieutenant with the New Haven Police Department who offers de-escalation trainings for law enforcement and the public. Ray, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Also, State Senator Gary Winfield, who co-chairs the Judiciary Committee in the Connecticut General Assembly. State Senator Winfield, thanks for your flexibility. Thanks for having me again. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, thanks to Kion Wolf, who's our technical producer. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.